think we can all remember a time in our life when we were chosen for something. I was thinking back to it uh, this week. My son started school. When I was a child, people made choices about who was on their sport team. You had to stand up against the wall, and the names were chosen over time. And you would have the thrill and exhilaration of being chosen first, or at least not last. If you were somewhere in the middle, you'd normally do the mental math, something like, well, I'm definitely not the slowest one, but I've only got the third best arm, so I think I'm in this order. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty much okay. I think I'm in the next three picks, something along those lines. But some of us can also remember the dread we had of being picked last. Later in life, much stronger desires to be chosen probably bubbled up within us in some way. You know, we applied for a job that we thought was maybe out of our league or a school that was out of our league. And we felt the experience and the thrill of being chosen for something we didn't expect or the grief of being rejected. You know, this desire, this longing to be chosen runs through every human heart. And we spend much of our lives trying to make ourselves worthy of being chosen. We try to make ourselves lovely so that we're chosen as a spouse. We try to make ourselves intelligent so we are chosen as a friend or a conversation partner or someone that is consulted with. We try to grow in our emotional intelligence so that people choose us as a friend. So much of our life is running towards the desire to be chosen and running from the desire to be rejected. I'd like to begin this week a series that's going to run all the way through Advent about the nature of being a disciple. As our church grows, I think it's important that we get back to the fundamentals. What, what does it even mean to be a Christian to begin with? And so I want to break it up into two sections. First, I want to look at the identity of the beloved. That is one of the images of discipleship that has always rung true in my heart, that we are the very beloved of God. And then the second half of the series, I want to look at the actions of the beloved, the works of the beloved, what we do as Christians. But before we get there, we first need to be grounded in who we are as the very beloved of God. And so here's a basic definition. I stole most of this from Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is probably my favorite spiritual writer because he's so brief. You know, some of these writers, all they do is they just talk at you. Say, listen, your job is to not talk at me. Your job is to lead me to Jesus and get out of the way, right? And I feel like that's what Nouwen does just beautifully. I stole most of this from him, but, you know, there's a number of other people involved. To be the beloved is to be a chosen child of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. The identity of the beloved is this. Let me say it again. A chosen child of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. It is my responsibility as a priest, especially at the Eucharist table, is to reveal that identity that you have week in and week out. As we take the bread, bless the bread, break the bread, reveal the bread to you as risen, and you feed upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So this week, what I'd like to do is look at that very first statement. You are a chosen child of God. This statement has divided churches. 
led to bitter disagreement and anger amongst one another. And yet, it's a thing that runs all throughout Scripture. You cannot ignore it, that our salvation depends entirely upon God's gracious initiative, God's choice to love us. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, where we're going to look at three things. First, I want to look at the love of God, which motivates his sovereign choice. Second, I want to look at what we are chosen into. We are chosen into the life of adoption as children of God. And third, I want to look at the Christological and Trinitarian nature of election, that we are chosen in Christ Jesus uniquely, that from beginning to end, our salvation depends upon our being brought into union with our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would, turn with me to one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. You know, when we're chosen for anything, uh, what drives the person that is choosing matters. Their motivation matters. Some of us have experienced being chosen for a job that doesn't really exist. You know, there's this new phenomenon in corporate structures that, you know, I'm not going to say what it's called because I get in, in trouble. But you're hired for a job that's not real just so that your direct manager has more direct reports so they can demand a higher raise, right? So you're like, oh man, I got this new job. It's a total facade. You're just going to be at a desk opening up an Excel sheet. You might have got a raise, but you're going to hate your life, okay? What were you chosen for? Someone else's raise. That's what you were chosen for, right? Or maybe as a child, you were chosen as prey. There was a bully in your life that picked you out for no good reason, and they made your life hell. What motivates the person choosing us matters, and what we see in our text today is that the motivation for our Lord God to choose us, to bring us into life with him, is not that he foreknew that we were really going to be good as compared to the baddies all around us. It wasn't that he knew that we were going to be intelligent enough to perceive all right doctrine. Rather, why he chose us was simply out of his love. Verse 5 said, in love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. When we look at our lives as the beloved, as we're going to look at this all throughout this coming season, this is what grounds our life as the beloved, that God chose to love us. God chose to love us when we weren't lovely. God chose to love us before we even existed. And then even when we did exist, we fell into sin and death and decay. And he chose to love us anyway, so much so that he sent his very son to live for us, to die for us, to rise to us, to, to ascend for us, to reign for us, to bring us back into life with him, all because of his love. In our world, we always think we have to do things to make ourselves desirable, and there are false theologies out there that say the exact same, same thing about the Christian life. You have to make yourself desirable for God or he's going to turn his back on you. 
But what the apostle Paul in all of scripture proclaims is that he has chosen to love you as an act of his divine will. Romans 9.15 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is his divine prerogative to love us. And what this at the end of the day does is it frees us from that dance of fear that grips us. If you don't know the historic Reformation tradition, the reason why the reformers elevated this doctrine so high was because the medieval ages was completely characterized by fear. Completely. If you ever read any books about uh, medieval pilgrimage, that, that's a really, those are some riveting books, medieval pilgrimage. Do you know why people went on medieval pilgrimage? Because they were terrified of God. Terrified. Because they lived in the medieval sacerdotal system that said you have to do these things or you're going to be eternally damned and you never know if God is for you or against you. And the reformers read the New Testament and said, this says the exact opposite, that God has so chosen to be for us that he sent his beloved son to die for me and nothing can pull me from that love. We all take it for granted because we were raised in the Protestant tradition and hopefully you were raised in healthy Reformation churches but it was something that was incredibly important for Cramner and Calvin and Luther and all of the reformers to bring back to the church the hope and security of the gospel. You know, I can't peer into the mystery as to why all are not chosen. That's not my story to tell. My story is simply this. If it was not for the grace of God, I would never have turned to him. And if you can't admit that as your story too, then you're deluded. That's all of our stories. At the very heart of the doctrine of election is to recognize humility in ourselves and the never-ending mercy and love of our God who chose to come and rescue us. You know, this week has been a pretty big week in the Suits household. Miles, my son, my oldest son, started kindergarten. Uh, he lost his first tooth and my favorite part of all, he finally let me start reading him chapter books. I'm like, let's get rid of all these pictures, Miles. I want to move you out of the realm of images into the realm of your imagination, right? So, of course, we started with the boxcar children because I love the boxcar children. And the boxcar children immediately transported me back to Miss Girdley's first grade classroom. My first grade teacher was named Miss Girdley. When I was back in Indiana recently, we had like a three-hour conversation. I'm still very good friends with Miss Girdley, right? She keeps saying, you can call me Donna now. And I'm like, no, I'll call you Miss Girdley in the new heavens and the new earth, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so if you know the boxcar children's story, right, there's these kids and their parents die. It's, it's not a very emotionally intelligent story in some ways because they're not like grieving the loss of their alcoholic father who died. What's going on with the mother? We don't know. We just know that they're in the woods running away because they're convinced that James Henry Alden, their grandfather, is evil. They're convinced he's a, he's a cross man, right? What a great old word we don't use nearly enough, a cross man. But then what do we find out as the book goes on? James Henry Alden is the kindest, most loving, generous grandfather anyone could ever ask for. And behind the scenes, he is hunting them down because he so desperately wants his grandchildren back. 
We don't know, you know, I haven't read the later books. I only read the original. But maybe he was crossed because he was trying to rescue his grandkids from his alcohol, their alcoholic father. I don't know the story. But in their minds, he's cross. And so what do they do? They, they go out into the woods and they, they make a life for themselves. They have milk and blueberries. They have no plan for winter. And I find it interesting that uh, Henry and Jesse, the older siblings, are perceived as being so intelligent and so strong, but they're the ones that have them stuck in the woods because they're the ones who are smart and intelligent and strong and they've convinced their younger siblings that grandpa's bad. That sounds an awful lot like the older siblings of our culture today, the enlightened people. And yet what happens? It doesn't matter that they were running. The grandfather's chase outpaced their flight. And through the doctor and through so many other means, he brings them into his home and into life. And family, this is our story. That while we were running away from God, or even when we thought we could turn to him like the prodigal son, we turned to an idol of who God is and we try to negotiate with him. And the true God says, come home by my initiative, by my love. That's the foundation of discipleship. That's the foundation of what it means to be a Christian, to no longer see God as judge, but to see him as beloved father. So now let's look at this second piece. What we are chosen into matters. When we are chosen into something that is not very enjoyable at all, that's not a choice we that we want. I'll never forget the hysterics my mother broke into when my draft card came when I was 18 because she was raised during Vietnam and she had family members who were chosen into something incredibly difficult. What we're chosen into matters. We'll look back at our text. What are we chosen into? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What are we chosen into? A life of holiness, which means to be set apart as what? A child of God. And notice how it's described. Predestined us for adoption to himself. So often we don't really understand that all throughout the scriptures, one of the major issues specifically in the ancient world is distance from God. Distance. We never think about that is that because of our unholiness, there is a distance between you and the holiness of God. And that's why in the Old Testament, you had these rings of holiness, right? Israel, and then the camp, and then the court, and then the inner court, and, and then the, the temple or the tabernacle, and then the holiest of holies. And however holy you get, you can get closer and closer and closer, but you can't stay close for very long. But what does God do in Jesus Christ? The Father brings us so close to himself that he calls us his very children. He cleanses us of our sin. So all that makes us distant and alien to him has been washed away by the blood of Jesus so that we no longer have to run away from him, but we can run to him as our one source of life. You know, I was talking to someone recently, um, and it was just a beautiful conversation. I asked him if I could share it, and he said I could. 
Uh, but you know, there was a gentleman in our church who recently got married. We're all very excited for him. And he married a woman who courageously adopted uh, two little girls as a single woman. And so on their wedding day, it was a beautiful image of the gospel. Because what are these images of salvation that we see in the New Testament? A groom choosing a bride as Jesus chooses the church. And then what else do we see? A father in heaven who chooses children. And it was so beautiful, and I, we weren't able to go to the wedding, sadly. Um, my son broke his elbow. Um, but the week after, he and I were talking, and he went to the girls that he had just adopted. And he said, when you're ready, you can call me dad. When you're ready, you can call me dad. And I thought, what a beautiful image of the gospel that our Lord God chose us for himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And now, now we can call him dad. And now when you pray to him, you don't have to call him creator, although he is. You don't have to call him judge, although he is. You don't have to only refer to him as sovereign Lord, although he is. You can call him dad. The one person you don't have to run away from, the one person you can run to. The one person in your greatest regrets you don't have to hide from. The one person in your greatest regret you can go to for consolation and hope. See, this is the very heart of election, that we have been chosen by God. And now he says, now you can call me dad. And yet so much of our lives is still running from him. So much of our lives is still trying to negotiate with him. So much of our lives is still trying to treat him as a judge instead of running to him as the one place where we can actually find peace. Do you see him as dad? This is how Jesus taught you to pray. This is how Jesus encourages you to walk with him. This is the great privilege that we have been given that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, now says, you can call me dad. My only question for you is, do you actually run to him? Do you actually claim that election for yourself? Or do you spend most of your life still trying to negotiate, still trying to bargain, still trying to be the prodigal son? Do you remember what the prodigal son does? I'll go home and I'll just be a servant and I'll negotiate with dad and then maybe he'll like me. And then what's the story actually about? The father just tells him to shut up and he throws him a giant party. That's at the very heart of what it means to be the beloved. So first, we see that our election is a result entirely of God's sovereign choice to love. Second, we see that we are chosen into a life with him as his beloved children, and now we can call him dad. And third, what I want to remind you is this is only possible because God became man. This is only possible as we are united to our Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at our text with me. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us, look at this last part, in the beloved. Now, if you are reading in the ESV, uh, you'll see that the beloved is capitalized here. I believe that's the right decision. Although the church is often called the beloved, here clearly the context is revealing that we are blessed as we are united to the one who is the beloved. Many of you know, you know, we named... We weren't originally named Trinity Anglican. We were named Wellspring Littleton. And then people got confused. They'd go to the wrong church. They'd get mad. They'd be like, this guy's bald and weird and I want Billy Waters. So we changed the name, right? And we changed the name over the years. And it was, it was good. But the reason why we chose Trinity Anglican is because the doctrine of the Trinity permeates everything we do as a church and everything about the Christian life. And here what we see is that to be, for us to be the beloved... We have to be united to the one who is beloved in his very nature. That before the foundations of the world, in the eternal moment of the Trinity, the perpetual moment that is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Father has been eternally lavishing love upon his beloved Son. That is the very first move of anything of existence itself. The divine moment of God's being is the love that the father has for his beloved son because the son is perfectly beautiful, perfectly good, perfectly true, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. He is perfectly lovely in all that he is and the father can do nothing but love him. And the son returns the father's gaze is gazing upon the one who is the fountainhead of all that is the one who is love, the one who is truth, the one who is goodness, the one who is beauty. And between the love of the Father and the Son, a third is breathed forth, the Holy Spirit, who in his very identity is love himself. And so what we see is that to be united to the beloved means to be brought into this love. This love that no creature can claim as their own by right. No creature can claim as their own in their nature. None of us can say, I demand that love. That is the love of the eternal Trinity within himself. And in his grace, what has he chosen to do? To bring us into that love by sending his son to be united to a human being so that we can be clothed in Christ, hidden in Christ, uh, united to Christ so that we might be raised into the very love of God. Now, some of you have heard this before, or at least thought this. Of, well, if that's what makes God loves me, then God doesn't love me. He just loves Jesus and he's tricked. He's chosen to trick himself, right? Right? There's nothing about me that he loves. I had a, someone say this once. This poor woman was raised in the Pelagian movement of the prosperity gospel. And so it was, I need to be lovely or it doesn't count as real love. Uh, and it was just tragic. 
And what we see in the scriptures is that, yes, there's something actually uniquely lovely about us. God loved us so much, even in our sins, he sent his son to come and die for us. But what this love is revealing to us is that we are brought into the kind of love that is categorically distinct. It is a love that makes your greatest moment of love look like indifference. It's a love that makes your greatest moment of joy look like sorrow. It's a love that is infinite. And God in his mercy chose to bring us into that love. A love that we can only have by grace and God has within his very nature. This is a love that we have yet to have fully revealed to us. This is a love that we will only grow to know as we go further up and further in eternally. This is a love that we will experience over and over again when the Lord brings his eternal reign to this earth. And this is a love that we are called to experience, if only with a glimpse today, to be unconditionally, infinitely loved. This is the heart of election. This is the heart of, the, of discipleship that God has chosen to love us in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So the only question I have for you is does this love ground your identity? Does this unconditional love um, say to you, this is who I am, come what may? This is who I am no matter what the world says. Or are you caught in the never-ending hamster wheel of trying to earn your love in this world? The gospel proclaims that you've already been loved as much as any human being can, simply because God chose to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your unconditional grace towards us. Thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world, not for anything that we have done, but simply as an act of grace. Lord, would our identities be rooted as the beloved? And may we glorify your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.